Pulls up the three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. from me Mark Woods welcome as always to the MVP cast thank you so much for tuning into the podcast don't forget if you want to keep up to date with all your basketball news subscribe to our Facebook Twitter or Instagram feed you can search to find them or head to mvp247.com and click on the link now our guest this time has a really fascinating new book out it's on a subject I covered extensively back at the days of Britpool.com it is called Hoops Across the Ocean, The Rise and Fall of the Irish Basketball Team. Its author is Connor Meany, who joins us today. How are you, Connor? Hi, Mark. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Thanks a million for having me and thanks for looking at us. Welcome to the MVP cast. Now, um, let's put this in a bit of context. I mean, Ireland, a small basketball nation in relative terms, but there was this big explosion and there was a point in time where there was good domestic talent there was a, a burgeoning league that was that was growing and had developed some good players lots of interest in the 70s and, and early 80s in it but then well, your book kind of explores is this point where the national team took off and it wasn't just straightforward about you know players who'd been developed it was on the back of the passports the dual passports the irish americans the diaspora that had gone well, their grannies had probably and their granddads had gone through Ellis Island and now we're sending their, their grandsons and great sons back. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating tale and we'll, we'll dig into some of it. But, you know, for you, writing a book, why this subject? Why the fascination? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So the, the first reason I started writing it was that uh, when COVID hit, I have two small kids and I needed something to distract myself. But... Uh, <laughs> I I guess sometimes when I talk about basketball, it's uh, I describe myself as a, a basketball lifer because uh, like I grew up in a basketball family, so basketball has kind of surrounded us for our, uh, our entire lives. My my father in particular was heavily involved at national and local level, so um, I grew up watching. Um, this period of international basketball from like the early 90s onwards and um if my own interaction with it is is interesting enough that um i was kind of i went from this stage of being the wide-eyed kid watching these uh both irish american and irish players uh, competing in the early 90s and then over time even as our team improved the kind of connection that I had with the Irish team kind of fell away a little bit in the uh, like early mid two thousands as it probably leaned too heavily into the um, Irish American era and we didn't have much of a connection with the players ourselves and so didn't really know who a lot of these guys were because um, at that stage the internet wasn't quite uh, quite there in terms of I you you in Ireland we certainly didn't know anything about Euroleague. We didn't know anything about like if you had said the ACB, someone wouldn't even know what that the three letters meant. <laughs> um, so it was kind of this idea that um, I wanted to figure out. Looking back at this era that I kind of watched from afar, of who these guys were, why they wanted to represent Ireland, and was it just as simple as? They were guys who were coming over to Europe and wanted to play professionally, or was there more to it? And then 
I guess the, the, the fall part of the whole story, unfortunately, is like the, it's well documented that the Irish teams were kind of scrapped uh, for a number of years because of financial difficulties. And my issue was, um, one, my, my dad was um, partially involved in that uh, ultimate decision because he got involved in trying to rescue the federation when it had over a million uh, euro in debt. But the other part of it was that I kind of played underage national team up to about under 20s. And for the majority of my, um, what should have been my prime, there was no national team to play for. Um, the, the kind of Irish select team and then the national team only came back in around when I turned uh, around 30. So for a big portion of my adult career, there was no national team to play for. So I think it was kind of a, a combination of those different factors all made this quite interesting to me. And in Ireland, um, not to ramble too long, but in Ireland, uh, one of the things that I'd be very conscious of having worked for Basketball Ireland is, uh, and also just being around the game is we know so little about our own history that um, uh, I think we do ourselves a disservice. And, there's been one amazing book on Irish basketball history and it's uh, hanging from the rafters by Karen Shannon. And it looks at the domestic game. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's a, it's a great shot of the eighties era in, in Ireland. It's, it goes beyond basketball. It's uh, like, it's basically looks at Irish culture and everything else at that time. And because it was so successful, um, I think that when people in Ireland think of Irish basketball history, that's all they think of. And I was very keen to try and figure out, could we add other elements in that looked beyond the shores of, of Ireland? And how did we get on when we were abroad? And also, how did our individual people get on when they went abroad uh, to the States uh, for college and different things? So kind of... Um, a passion project, I guess, from uh, just an interest in the game for, for my whole life, really. I mean, this book slightly picks up where Kieran's book left off in the sense of, you know, what what happened next. And there was this point where, you know, the league had gone through a cycle. It probably wasn't as strong as it had been in the previous decade. But the national team, I think people either realised or pushed for the, the fact to, to make it a bigger thing because... You know, in in the words of your book and lots of people you spoke to, the focus had been so much on the domestic league that international competition probably wasn't wasn't you know as as, as prevalent or prestigious or whatever, even amongst players who played in Ireland. But then you got this point where you know mid to late nineties, where you know it it just grew and grew, but the pathway towards there was, I guess, I suppose it's DNA. It was really this realization that. To succeed at the highest level, Ireland needed height and Ireland needed talent. And what better source for it than America? Yeah, definitely. It's it kind of the, the domestic and international games really flowed opposite each other for the 80s and 90s. So as you said, like during Kieran's book in the 80s, it's, I believe it's the same in, in the UK, is that like the game exploded it was full houses all over the country. Every it was the ticket everyone wanted to see. It wasn't just basketball fans; everyone was a basketball fan. Um, and at that same time, the Irish national team were trying to uh, play in tournaments. And the stories would go that they 
like they'd have guys dropping off the team regularly. They when they went to scout games, they couldn't even like the national team coach couldn't even get into the some of the gyms because they were already full up and they're turning away the national team coach. And at the same time, internationally, other countries were starting to explore this naturalization process where they were able to give um, passports to uh, Americans who had come over and played. So. Um, Ireland started looking at us and it was actually through the lens of um, relationship with um, British basketball really it was the likes of the, the Federations Cup and things in the early 80s and the Roy Curtis is a big tournament uh, or was a big tournament in Ireland and it was through relationships with uh, some of those English clubs the likes of uh, Kingston um, I know Murray Meadows were always a big part but uh, it was through those relationships that they actually got some of the very initial Irish Americans uh, who had passports and were eligible to play. And they were looking to see how they could give the national team a boost to be able to compete. And at the same time that the the league was developing, it was a, a small group of people, the likes of Danny Fulton and Enda Burst in particular, who started really trying to recruit in Irish Americans and find a way to get them embedded early in the process so they actually were finding under 18 players who had irish uh, american history and connections and got them playing for our junior men's national team and then tried to filter them up into the into the uh, men's national team and what's interesting is that at the end of the 80s basketball in ireland moved from two americans to one american and it's often the big hot topic of whether it destroyed the the league at the time but Around that same time was when these Irish Americans started filtering through the junior men's system and were becoming eligible for the the senior national team. And they started making progress. And uh, for Ireland, I think one of the the big things that happened was um, we entered into the World University Games in uh, starting in Sheffield in 91 but then also in Buffalo in 93, and then it was in uh, Japan in 95. And those games became this breeding ground for Irish-American talent, really high-level talent to come through and and play for Ireland. And it also developed something beyond what uh, the guys ever had a chance to do in the 80s. So in the 80s, the argument was that they wanted to win Cups they want to win leagues domestically. That's where the attention was. That's where like, there was often TV, there was big crowds. They weren't interested in going and playing against the likes of Iceland in front of like 100 people. It just wasn't something that... Re- like, that's no disrespect to Iceland, but it's, it's, the case, it's the way that it was at that stage. And then suddenly when you're going into the 90s and you're going to play... 1991, Ireland played against like Bobby Hurley at the World University Games in Sheffield, uh, uh, and Sky Sports actually covered that game. And in uh, years later, in '95, uh, Ireland played a warm-up game against the the States, and the States uh, starting five included like Alan Iverson, Ray Allen, Tim Duncan, and it's just like these are experiences and moments that suddenly made the national team to be something that people wanted to be a part of, and it kind of organically grew then into something that um, as the the state of European basketball changed because of the Bosman rule and different things in the mid-90s and the Irish passport became more available, then suddenly people wanted to be part of this program that was starting to be more and more successful. How much when, you, when you're looking back at this and you're speaking to people of that era, I mean, setting aside 
the impact it had maybe culturally but commercially you, you remember you know remember era where you know all the tournaments were were sponsored and the teams were sponsored and you had the sprite cup and you had teams called Burgerland and various you know smithics all these different kind of names it was you know there, there was money was coming through not huge but there was some there did you get a sense from people at the time you know your father and others that that having these bigger figures um you know and the, the sort of glamour of it but also in an irish shirt commercially made any particular difference uh yeah so like that it's i think when when national team programs and this remains true today is that um, there's a chicken and egg thing often with them. It's like you want to have a strong national team to try and raise media profile to bring in commercial, but then you also need commercial to be able to have a strong national team. It, it, it's always a, a challenging one. Um, I think the there definitely was like there's an evolution within Irish basketball during the 90s in terms of the resources that were available to it. So, like the famous story is that in 1994. Ireland won the Promotions Cup, the equivalent of the, uh, what's now the small countries, mm. and they won it in Dublin. And Enda Burt, who was the coach at the time, actually walked away from the team um, a week before the, the tournament happened. He, he didn't, and he was the catalyst for all this happening, and he didn't end up coaching the, the tournament itself. And it was, the reason was that the budget that the federation were able to give was just £3,000 in total. <laughs> and that was on the backdrop of uh, the new, like the national arena in Tala had only opened up a year earlier, and there was costs associated with that and everything else. But what I, I don't know if it was just fortunate timing of things all happening around the same time, but I like in the initial days of these Americans coming in, they were they were fundraising themselves. There was like golf classics and things in the states where the the desire to be part of Irish basketball was so strong for the Irish diaspora. Like the one of the things that I really got a sense of from the early Irish Americans was like when when the guys were playing in Buffalo in ninety three in the World University Games, there was fathers like crying in the stands about their sons playing for Ireland. And that's just the strength of the Irish American kind of ties to Ireland and what it really meant for families so there was something more in those early days and it led them to to try and finance it themselves but then what started to happen was um, and this where I'm not sure whether it's just uh, like the timing just happened to align was that ultimately the Celtic Tiger kind of era was starting to kick off right as um, this new recruitment of high level Irish Americans was kicking off and there was huge uh, cor- corporate support suddenly came into the game from the likes of ESB, the big major power company mm-hmm. in Ireland. And there was way more resources available, particularly in the early 2000s than were ever there before. So um, whether the, the story of being able to say, look, we have former NBA players and different things were helped to secure that deal, it, more than likely it did. But um, it was... It was always something that, even in later years, it's still something that people were chasing, was that the national team could deliver a media profile that could lead to finance, which could then be reinvested in the game. And whether or not a, like a, a top-down 
funding mechanism really works within sport is is kind of up for debate, I guess. I mean, there is a the big debate. That's one of the, the central and really fascinating themes in this book. And we've had Adrian Fulton on this podcast before. He's, I think, the, the best Indigenous point guard ever to, to come off the island. And obviously Pat Burke, the only Irish-born NBA player, very proud Irishman, even though he's been in the States for, since, since he was a kid. But... And both of them kind of give different perspectives on this. But there, there was very much a kind of cultural tug of war between, and this is this was within the team, I'm out with the team, of whether these were almost like plastic Irishmen, if they were really Irish, or and if you know, if, if we could we could consider them Irish and you could cheer for them as Irish, or if they were Americans who were just essentially carpet bagging to get the passport and more money. And this was something they did on the side, and it, it it was it was quite the debate, and there was you know lines drawn down the middle of families you know, to to kind of throw it out there that some some people thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and other people thought this was mouldy bread. Yeah, it's uh, it's still something that if you ask people today to look back on this, you'll guess one of two answers of uh, uh, around that. Um, it, it's strange the. It, it goes back to this whole reason. This is the whole reason that I uh, wanted to look at it because I wanted to look at the reasoning of why these guys played. Like Jay Laranaga, who I, he's now with the Clippers, but was uh, the associate head coach, I think, with uh, the, Celtics. The, the Celtics under Brad Stevens for for years. And but like there was why 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 did Jay Laranaga want to play for Ireland? Is, like was a, a big question for. Like I understand the Pat Burke or whatever who was born in Ireland, but looking at guys like that, I was always just fascinated. Was like wondering why, and um, I I really did get the sense when I was talking to these guys that it was something that was hugely important to their families. It, the Irish American identity is so strong that um, these guys were giving up time to come and play for Ireland when they didn't have to. Um, like we can get into the like the FIBA rules later on, but there was ways for guys not to get called to Ireland at the end of a long season if they wanted it. And a lot of these guys turned up every single time and were selfless around the the Irish guys to the point that guys like Adrian and Gareth Maguire, Damian Seeley, those sort of guys who were around these guys for years, they would have no question in their minds that it was the best thing uh, that these guys were playing alongside them that these were proper Irish people, they cared about it, and this is really important. A good example of it is that Gareth, um, Gareth McGuire is a well-known character within Irish basketball, and he's a good man for telling uh, a story or two, but <laughs> he, he would kind of impart on the early Irish Americans of the importance of what it meant to represent Ireland, and you're not just playing for a pro team here, this is like why this is really important to us and why it really mattered. And Jay Laranaga, after Gareth had um, retired, Jay Laranaga used to bring any new player in to meet the head coach with Jay. And Jay would end up telling all those stories of the kind of why this is important to us as Irish people, even though he wasn't born in Ireland. His, his grandfather, uh, his mother's uh, father was born in Cork. But it's amazing how they fully embodied that kind of sense of being part of Ireland, particularly in the early stages of this kind of Irish American thing. 
But on the flip side of it, you're dead right. And even Adrian's dad, Danny, who was the head coach of the Irish national team in kind of the uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, he was kind of more along the lines of we should be competing at whatever level that our own domestic talent is capable of playing at rather than trying to strive to bring in outside players completely to uh, help us kind of get to a higher level. And there was a feeling within the game that uh, a disconnect existed. And that disconnect existed for me as well in later years where I was kind of like, well, I'm not seeing beyond an Adrian or a Gareth, I'm not seeing any other Irish players. And even after that, in 2005, we played two European Championship qualifiers that there was one player born in Ireland, which is Pat Burke, but no players developed in Ireland. So it was effectively a team of Irish Americans and the disconnect grew with the national team as a result of that. And um, Pat Burke himself would say that there was often times when they were over that if the guys were going for a beer in town in Dublin, like they'd stand out obviously as a group of <laughs> like six, 10 guys and people would come up and ask them what they're doing. And uh, they'd say that they're the Irish team and people would kind of like, you don't really fit the bill of what we expect an Irish team to be. Like, why are you talking with that accent kind of thing? To the point that they even just didn't bother getting into it with people over time. But it, 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 it is a really interesting look at these guys were doing it for what the majority of them were doing it for a very pure reason. And yes, because that disconnect existed and people didn't fully know who these guys were as they flew in from time to time, there was some kind of resistance towards them and they weren't supported as much as they possibly could have been. Do you think it's, that's quite curious though? Because everyone remembers the 90s and the Jack Charlton era in football. And you know, if, yeah. you, if you went around that team, whether you know, it was the team that went to Italia 90 or the USN 94, you could pick out the star names and, and pick out where they were born and what their accents were. And very few of them were Irish by birth or by accent it was a very similar kind of group, just more of them from Britain than, than from America. Did, did, was it something, do you think, peculiar to basketball? I mean, I know you talk about meeting people, random people in bars, but within the game, there was this yeah. conflict about whether this team really represented if, you know, it was, if, if it was truly Irish. But that didn't really seem the same in football. No, definitely. And you're, you're dead right. So I think Italian 90 for Ireland, the the famous win to get us to the quarterfinals, uh, the penalty shootout over Romania. I think everyone who took a penalty in that shootout um, was born in the UK. Mm. And it, it, that's just glossed over. And you look at the same thing we have, like in cricket, one of our most famous uh, victories early on was in, in the World Cup. Uh, Trent Johnson from Australia mm. had the winning runs. So you have, uh, we beat the All Blacks in Chicago and CJ Sandard from South Africa scores one of the tries and all of that's glossed over because the end result was there to where they had huge success. And if this national team had gotten over the hump and had more success, maybe it would have been glossed over. But I think one of the factors that um, the reasons that it, it didn't, that they were kind of identified as so different was that we're just as they were coming in in the kind of particularly in the 90s onwards i think we're just coming off the back of the 80s era where we're so used to these american basketball players coming into our countries that were the stars who've come in and they're kind of like your your pro player or your mercenary who's brought in and there's this identity i think in people's minds that 
these are just pro players and America is quite far away from it's not just next door and that it it kind of changed the element of of um of how they were perceived and then the other part of it was that even though uh, there was a hesitancy at times in the 80s for Irish guys to even want to uh, turn up for the national team i think once that opportunity was starting to be taken away from them and uh, you're seeing more and more americans taking spots then it just heightens that idea of um of these are outsiders taking kind of spots of domestic players and i'd imagine that if you talk to diehard like league of ireland football uh, people they there would be some hesitancy that homegrown talent isn't uh, given the same opportunities within international football because of people born outside the country so maybe the same but certainly not to the same extent and the mass public only remember the the successes and maybe it's just that in basketball we didn't have enough of those big moments of success to to change that narrative it surprised me when i i i I really thought about this it's not as much in the book but i was thinking about it is the you had the irish americans but you also obviously had a contingent of americans who made their home in ireland and we'll talk about the feeble but they were essentially different then in terms of how you qualified as as being eligible for national teams but that didn't really looking back on it have as much of an impact i you know i can think of guys who played for ireland and you know javan dupree comes comes to mind a good friend of mine um but it, it probably wasn't the influence that you might have expected if you compare it to maybe say england where a lot of you know, there was a lot of naturalization went on at the time yeah it it, it really wasn't the same in ireland the, the kind of three the three big ones are uh javan uh who he has the irish like national team records um from the roy curtis i think it was 53 or 63 that he scored in one of the games. Um, but he, he he didn't even get to play in any of the official international competitions for Ireland. But And then it's Kelvin Troy and Jerome Westbrooks are the two that kind of did. And it, it, it really wasn't this thing. Um, there's other guys who stayed in Ireland for a long time, but I, I, I don't know what the what the reasoning being was for that, that it was less so a priority for people because... We we had people. Um, my own club is UCD Marion, and um, our Yo Play Marion, as they were back in the eighties. And one of our guys, um, who was only in in Marion for a year, Mike Smith, ended up going over, playing for Real Madrid uh, and Juventus in, in in Spain. And he ended up playing European Championships for Spain, and he got naturalized over there. And it was a process that was just normal in other countries. But I don't know whether it was that we didn't want to seek out that route or whether there was another route possible um, or just that guys, as they stayed in Ireland longer and longer, that they were kind of older by the time that they went about getting naturalized. Um, I'm not really sure why there wasn't more because there's certainly, there's a a contingent of guys who who came over in the eighties who are still making an impact in, in Ireland today who are, have been coaching and different things for many many years and their kids are playing and everything else but very few of them actually played for the national team the, that rise we we'll talk about you know what happened on the court and you know pat burke came in a little bit at the end of it because he couldn't always get away when especially when he was in the nba but also in europe but there was some you know, great sort of move up the rankings i mean Ender burke wonderful character was, was head coach and then a guy called bill dooley came in and 
I mean, the system in Europe, they kind of put this in a, a bit of a background. You know, there, was, there was sort of a first round and then there was a semi-final round of the European Championships. And these days, the way that the structure of European country or national team basketball has changed, reaching the semi-final round would now be the equivalent of getting to the Eurobasket finals. And that kind of became the holy grail for, for Ireland. And eventually that, that group, a mix of some Irish born players, Irish trained players, and some you know, Irish Americans got there. Um, but it, you know, and, and the opponents they were playing, I mean, you teams like Germany and Croatia and Bosnia, I mean, that German team that went to the World Championships reached the semifinals with, with Dirk Nowitzki. Obviously, Dirk didn't play because it was mid season, but I mean, the, the excitement that, that came out of that should have been huge. But from you, your research and from, from your own memories, did it really sort of hit home? No, it's uh, it's something that I think we probably took for granted when it happened. <laughs> didn't even re- maybe not even t- took for granted. Didn't even realize what was going on. I think people knew that yeah, Germany, Croatia, this, these are the big countries and things. But I I don't think people got as behind it as they they could have gotten. Uh, like I think there was an interest level in it, but. That was the extent of it, and I, I, I think it goes back to this idea that um, at that stage we just didn't know who these guys were. The majority of them. Um, so, like when we're playing Germany, you have uh, like Marty Conlon who played in the NBA for eight, nine years. He was towards the end of his career, but um, you then have the likes of uh, guys like Jay Larnaga played Real Madrid. Um, played in Asphalt in France. You had Jim Moran, who was the first person ever to have his jersey uh, retired in uh, Gran Canaria. Like, Jim's a great example. If you said Jim Moran's name in Gran Canaria today, they'd know him as the Irishman who's good at basketball. If you said Jim Moran's name in Ireland, no one would know who he is, even within the basketball community. And that's incredible. Um and it's this idea, I think, at that time was that we were progressing and we were good. And yes, we didn't probably appreciate it and we didn't fully, uh, the team didn't fully resonate with the Irish public. So it didn't grow into something that was more um, like the, and I think going back to your commercial question was that I think the idea in a lot of people's minds were that once we got to that sort of stage that the, the TV kind of things and big sponsors are going to all of a sudden be lining up to, they want to be part of that. And it just wasn't the reality of international basketball at that time. It's like when Germany come to play Ireland and Dublin, it doesn't mean it's not the same as football where you're going to have a couple of thousand fans coming in. It was kind of just on its own, uh, an occasion by itself, but it didn't lead to the the development of, of the game in the same way. But what's mad is that, you look at things uh, in modern day, um, and not to skip too far forward, we can come back to it in a while, but um, in a few years after th- that German game, we had an opportunity to, when it went to A and B division, and we played against Denmark, and Denmark's a similar basketball-type country to Ireland, and I kind of got into it with some of the Danish people asking, like, mm when they went to the A division to have the same impact that we were always looking for, chasing that kind of the TV and revenue and different things. And they were saying, no, that um, it led to TV, but TV to support their domestic league, which 
would have been interesting for Ireland because at that time in the early 2000s, if we had gotten the TV that was going to help our domestic league, we didn't have a strong enough domestic league to to keep it going. So we would have lost out in the long run anyway. Uh, so it's just, it's interesting when you look at some of these what if kind of moments, what impact they could have on the game. And one of the interesting things when I was talking to the Danish people was around the time of um, The Last Dance coming out on Netflix. And they were saying at that time, it was like amazing how something like The Last Dance could be a cultural phenomenon that transcends the international game. And that's what got kids playing. And the same sort of thing happened in Ireland here. Uh, It seemed to happen all over the world. And it's amazing that it may be something indirect like that that could actually lead more people to care about basketball than something like actually competing with the top teams in the world. I mean, the what if moment in the book that you, you do look at is you talked about that about Denmark game. It's a playoff, two legs to get into Division A. It was a big win in the first leg, Denmark in the second one. It goes to overtime because it's tied at the end of regulation. Aaron lose by two. Lots of heartbreak. But the big figure who was absent was Pat Burke. And Pat Burke calls afterwards to find what happens. And and then, you know, he just signed for the Phoenix Suns. So he was going back to the NBA, decided to skip the game because he felt that, you know, pressures of the NBA. You want to be there. You want to you get in early. But later really regretted that because he missed the moment. And it, I think this goes to an extent, it sums up the difficulty in all this, that you had the diehard sort of, Irish Americans and people, you know, Pat, if you can call them Irish American, but Irish, but you know, people who had been in the yep. states, and then the people from Ireland at home, and there was probably that balance shifted perhaps too much, in 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 your words, and that those who came through and those who were part of the growth probably were forgotten about in all of this and it perhaps didn't mean as much to as many people as it could have done. Yeah, uh, no, it's certainly, there There was definitely a disconnect uh, with us. And the, the Denmark one is definitely the biggest what if within that whole space because um, the RTE, the national broadcaster, actually covered both the home and away uh, games. And it was the only time really that the international team got into this mode of, uh, like, not when Germany or Croatia were there, but for these Denmark games, this idea of uh, we had three former NBA players at the time. We had Pat, we had uh, Marty Conlon, and then Cal Bodler was the, I think it was the 13th pick in the NBA draft mm-hmm. um, in 1999, and he was playing as well. And it finally, I think Pat was a big reason that he brought in the extra media attention. It was a nice story. The Irish-born guy who made it to the NBA and all this sort of thing. So it was this big moment. And yeah, Pat absolutely regrets it um, and wasn't there for us. And it's, it's amazing how quickly the air drained out of the whole momentum that had been built up for a number of years. And that was the last seminal moment really of the of the national team they go on for another four or five years but that was the that was the moment that it all kind of effectively started coming to an end and it, it crossed over into an, another era and uh it's amazing when you talk to pat about it he absolutely regrets it well you when you talk to a number of the players 
the challenge that existed within uh, within Ireland at the time, uh, particularly in the early 2000s, but also the late 90s, we had a small pool of Irish American players who we knew that were really like really cared about playing for Ireland, and they were put under huge pressures by their clubs all around Europe not to play for Ireland. That it was kind of like if you're playing national team for Spain, that's fine, you can be released, no issues. But then what is what's Irish basketball is kind of the question that the guys were often asked and when they look back at it years later it's a regret that they all kind of seem to have is that they were part of something that was bigger than just being a pro but the pressures of being a pro and trying to maintain your own professional career um is is something that was there in the background for them and then it's really interesting that you have these guys having these uh pressures from like Benetton Treviso, Gran Canaria, Real Madrid, Panathinaikos are all putting pressure on guys. And then you have Adrian Fulton, Gareth Maguire, school teachers, Damien Celia, prison guard on the same team and working through completely different issues. So it's just, it was kind of a bizarre time for, for, for Irish basketball. And um, it's, it, the, that Denmark game is definitely the, the ultimate what if, I think. I mean, you touched on it earlier about the, the financial implosion of, of Basketball Ireland. I mean, it, it, as an organisation, I mean, it slashed staff. I think there was about 70% of its staff was cut and you know, it, it was effectively bankrupt in, in, in every sense yeah. of the word because of that. And you know, it was a long, slow burn. And, you know, teams, it took four or five years to get senior international teams back and, it, you know, starting at the bottom. And it was, it, it was very much a kind of, you know, burnt burn down to the ground and rebuild on that one do you think that in a way could that if 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 that whole irish american situation we're in the ifs here but if that whole situation of using that success of using those players perhaps a little better than maybe they were in terms of making them visible or getting them engaged with the community we just going out and visiting schools or something like that you know the small things do you think it could have been avoided if that that if you stood back with hindsight, which is a, it's a very easy to do, but if that had been capitalized on in a different way, yeah, potentially it's like uh, the guys certainly there was definitely a disconnect between the national team and the wider game in Ireland. It was almost a self-contained unit that uh, didn't interact with the game, and the guys uh, would would talk about a regret that they didn't get to have more of an impact on the ground when they were in Ireland. Um, that's easy to kind of say with hindsight for everybody that it should have been made more of. The the issues that came for Basketball Ireland in terms of finance weren't like the majority of the reason that uh, the financial difficulties came was kind of separate to the national team completely. And what, interestingly, I'm not fully sure of is that if we had actually been successful in Denmark would we have been committing even more money to try and survive at A-level? Uh, and could we have found ourselves in an even worse uh, position? I don't know that that either. So um, I, I guess you can make the argument that it could have gone either way. I, I'm not sure. I, I guess, the, as I said earlier on, the, the commercial impact was improving when the Celtic Tiger was improving. And it just happens that the downfall of the national team was also at the downfall of the Irish economy so I'm not sure that it could have uh, uh, you'd almost say that even if everything had been done right 
it may have just been a case of the worst timing possible because money drained out of Ireland completely at that time. History couldn't repeat itself now in a sense because FIBA's nationality rules have changed and you can't, despite your ancestry as as Great Britain as Ireland are fine to its cost it's not enough to get you on a national team as a native player in FIFA's eyes you have to have that passport now by the age of 16 and you know, we're a generation removed there's less people that are you know, first generation American, Irish into the States who would have that passport or have that connection so you know things are, the culture of it's changed but do, do you feel in a sense that that's still those links are still being capitalized on and even though the the extra resource the extra playing pool isn't there or isn't as easily available as it was 20 30 years ago yeah it's very challenging to do it nowadays uh as you said it's really only one spot out of 12 that you're allowed to have a naturalized person and then other than that it's before age 16 and uh, if you're if it was to be capitalized on now, it really needs a huge amount of work to try and identify families <laughs> early. <laughs> and like to be honest, how this whole thing started, really, it was end of birth. It was as simple as taking out ads in the big Irish-American newspaper saying, we want basketball players. And here's Irish trials, come come find out. And uh, like one of those trials led to three guys who played either NBA or EuroLeague. Uh, like it's, it's amazing what can be done, but it's at the same time it's a big challenge to try and go out and find that. And uh, the the FIBA rules, I think one of the things that is puts a a big onus on countries is that it has to develop its own talent and it can't forget its own talent. And that's increasingly what we're seeing is, uh, and I think we're seeing it in. Uh, like GB, uh, some of the underage results have been incredible over the last couple of years. As you see, amazing young players come through. Ireland are starting to, we're having results on the female side, but we're having individuals come through on the male side that is now an, an area that could be very exciting for the next couple of years. Through actual, like in the 80s and 90s, the impact came from previous generations emigration from ireland but now we're benefiting from the immigration into ireland that's happened over the last kind of 10 or 15 years so it's uh it's kind of it's a very different situation than than uh as you said was there in the past i mean your other hat but to be relinquished this week but we've got you now so we can put you on the spot i mean commercial manager yeah. basketball ireland how would you describe the health of both the league and I guess the sport at home, I mean, you've still got, you know, the Irish Super League and, and there's there's little pockets of television coverage for it and, and et cetera. But, you know, as a whole, how healthy does the sport feel? Maybe as you look across the sea to what's going on with investment coming into, you know, in British basketball at the moment. Yeah, so we're very jealous of the, the investment that's gone into the VBL. It feels... I don't know if this is fair characterization, but it's, it feels like at times British basketball in particular was getting in its own way uh, to have a success. And um, there was always kind of hurdles being put up that didn't need to be there. And now things seem to be going right. And there's progression to like, I would have said we weren't a million miles away from the lower level of BBL a couple of years ago, mm. but now you're seeing, you're seeing the kind of, upper levels of BBL 
are just gone into a completely different level of professionalism than we're capable of. In Ireland, the situation in general is that the, the sport is doing incredibly well in terms of participation and there's more talent coming through than there has before. The leagues need investment, absolutely. Um, we're stuck in this uh, era that we still have one American on course. Um, what's actually happened a lot because of that rule is a lot more teams have European players, which personally I kind of like to a certain degree that um, it's more team basketball and we're we're following Europe a lot more than we're following the States like we would have back in the day. And it's not just having two Americans who are going to share 30 points each and that's it and everyone else stands still and watch it. It's much more team basketball, but it's in desperate need of... Um, finance to come in and really kind of help the clubs to professionalize themselves a lot of our clubs are based off kind of university partnerships where guys are coming in on masters and different things um but uh, as a sport in general is it's certainly on the right trajectory and there's a lot of really good things happening one of the good things that uh not a, i i guess the if you're ever going to have a good thing of getting into so much debt is that it really got us to focus in on what was really important and we stripped everything bare have been building it back up and are now adding things back in to and they're all things that add to the picture rather than just things we're doing it just because that's the way we've done it for years so in a way there's um there's a huge amount of positivity i think uh, on the way to where we could get to but I think in terms of media profile, commercial kind of status and different things, we're still a bit off where, where we need to be if, if we're going to make it into a really competitive sport. I mean, people always talk about funding and always kind of look at funding. I mean, and, and probably without appreciating how generous UK sports funding is compared to the pot that Sport Ireland have to get. And, you know, yeah. you're, you're up against football and, and GAA and rugby. And we've seen some of the extortionate, you know, subsidies you could call it a bailout that, that, uh, the Football Association of Ireland have had for for financial difficulties, etc. I mean, how much of you know, how how do you raise that funding? Give people a, you know all of us a sense of listening because it's for international basketball. It is, it's to a large extent self funding. Yeah, absolutely. Our 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 programs have been uh, self completely self funded for a number of years, and um, at the moment now it's gotten to the stage where our senior teams are have commercial support so they're able to survive but is are, are the programs as kind of uh as full as they should be in terms of the resources that are afforded to the players no they're not and we wanted to get better but we don't have access to high performance funding in ireland so it's not possible but at the underage level absolutely from our academies up to our national teams beyond a small amount of money that's been able to be provided the majority of those programs are self-funded so it's parents having to pay for their kids to play for ireland which is definitely not the way that we want it to happen and yes um there's people all over this country who care so much about the sport and wanted to progress that they're able to put their hand in their pocket and, and make it a reality and have people able to go and we probably like we absolutely outperform what we should be doing considering that we are self-funded. Like the the idea that um, our under eighteen women had a silver medal in the B Europeans and then a, a bronze at twenties level, or that they've won a game at uh, at under eighteen A level 
while being completely self-funded is in itself kind of ridiculous. Um, but it's amazing what people are capable of doing. But long term, it's definitely the ambition that that won't be the case. But um, in, in Ireland, it, we've kind of followed the UK model to a certain degree in terms of high performance funding is deemed by um, your uh, your capacity to medal at major championships. Mm. And um, I think it's, uh, I may get the name wrong, but I think it's uh, Lisa Wainwright. Is yes. that uh, right? Yeah, yeah Lisa a couple of years ago had a, an article or was quoted in an article and it was uh, talking about how team sports can't be judged on the same thing. And it's, uh, I'd be kind of a, very much the same opinion. It's like you, one of the things, even looking back at this book and you're looking at all the challenges to get your best guys together and all these situations, everything that needs to be right within team sport to be able to, to play at the top level. And you're looking at this kind of thing where you're saying, all right, well, over the next three to four years, are you capable of meddling? And it's like, well, no, in team sports, you need to have funding for 10 years to build a program so that you can actually develop in, uh, something that's sustainable and that's capable of competing in high performance. And when you look at the impact that sports like basketball have, and particularly on the communities that it has an impact on, it's just is it, it, is completely underfunded not just in Ireland but in the UK as well and it's it's something that that it, it's a lot easier to to fund a heavily fund a clay pigeon shooter because they have a chance of having that gold medal than it is to put funding into a, a team sport that could have a huge social and cultural impact as well as having the potential over years to ever be able to compete at international level so it's a very challenging one at least you don't have netball in ireland at least in the republic of ireland anyway so there's there's one less competition for that <laughs> yeah sure. um, last question we, we, we do we do have to deal with the gaa though that's uh it kind of takes all of our players <laughs> behemoth and um, last question um we mentioned bbl and we mentioned sort of the growth of the game obviously there is talk about expansion there has been many times that we've talked about Belfast is a potential expansion. I've talked to people like see Dublin and Belfast is a neat two two city package deal to come into the BBL at some point. And also but not just from for financially, but to kind of create that professional team, to create the top of the pyramid, the pathway. I mean, setting aside obviously the government and you know, governance and authorization and how that would work. But you know, from a commercial point of view, from a sporting pathway point of view. How does that idea sit with you? The idea of two Irish franchises, I mean, you could look maybe Cork as well, but you know, coming into the BBL with the investment, with a growth plan, and being a new direction for, for Irish basketball. Yeah, it's, um, it is something that I've heard a number of times over the years, and um, I, commercially, look, I think it, it has a lot of potential that um, particularly like Dublin has just so many of these, like your Googles, your uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, they're all here and they're all looking for that kind of professional entertainment for staff that our own clubs just aren't able to provide at a high enough level that with the right investment, you could create something that's that's really interesting. Dublin obviously has the arena itself is there, whether you want to use there or somewhere else, it, it has that kind of ready-made. Um, 
take like this completely with uh, the basketball Ireland hat completely off. But I'd be from a personal point of view, I think it's really interesting. Is uh, the potential for Ireland to get it right would be that I think you have to go down the route that rugby has gone in this country and you have to go with centralized players who are Irish players. So our top players who are coming back from college are who are trying to get into the market within Europe that they come into a year or two playing in Ireland. Um, so that when we have the international windows that we have groups of guys who are already playing together in a decent league. Uh, ideally, if you had American players that they were Irish American players again, uh, with the potential to uh, have, represent the national team. So they're uh, maybe not all of them, but certainly a portion of them. Um, and that if these guys were getting paid to be on a centralized contract, that it, again, it goes back into this local development and how does it help grow the game in Ireland and really trying to fit all those things together. The worry and the argument against it certainly would be that uh, the feeling in Ireland would be that the uh, All-Ireland League, the league, uh, the one below Leinster and Ulster and uh, Connacht and Munster and rugby was decimated when uh, professional rugby came in and uh, took all of the attention and all the resources away from the local league. So I'm sure there'll be hesitancy from people within our own league to, uh, they don't want uh, something like a franchise or two to come in and try and, uh, take every all the attention away from our own league, but I, I definitely think there's a way um, to to do both, where you can have a separate entity that the best players from the Super League are are able to kind of earn the ability to go and play at a higher level, which uh, would be interesting. So it's uh, I definitely think there's a conversation to be had and really look at it and particularly with the investment that's there in the BBL over the next couple of years um, it could be uh, now is probably uh, the best time to really be having that conversation money as always we'll talk anyway uh, Hoops yeah, Across the absolutely. Ocean is available on both Kindle and paperback you can get it via Amazon if you want to know more about the book or if you want to reach out to Connor you can get it at his website which is hoopsacrosstheocean.com Connor Appreciate you coming on the MVP cast. Really enjoyed chatting. Great book. Go and read it, everybody. And um, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That is it for this edition. You might also enjoy our recent shows of Maud Ranger and Josh Steele. If you haven't already, please subscribe via your preferred podcast provider or just ask Alexa or Google or whatever the other devices are to play the MVP cast. It's always great to hear from you as well. If you want to reach out, get me on Twitter at Mark Britpool. Another edition coming very soon, but for me, Mark Woods, thank you so much for listening and it's goodbye.